Jonah had been told by God to go to the city of Nineveh and proclaim that message you just saw on the screen, that he was going to condemn them. He was going to destroy that city unless they repent. And he went the other way. Why don't you think about that for a second? It is amazing. Uh, some of us were laughing uh, last Wednesday night about the fact that if you go into a Christian bookstore and you look at their small uh, toy department, you'll find a whale and a little Jonah. <laughs> you'll find a Noah's Ark that obviously is missing the hundreds and thousands of dead people on the outside of the ark. I mean, the reality is we, we, we caricature these stories and, and we forget what was really going on. This was about a prophet, a shepherd, an officer in God's kingdom that God clearly tells what he wants them to do. And he says, no. And he heads the other way. But God got Jonah's attention with a huge storm. And during that storm, he redeems a ship full of guys while swallowing Jonah up into the belly of a big fish so that they could have their conversion. Jonah's response was to cry out to God, just as God had intended them to do when he got swallowed. And I want to say that on the side that too often we think of the story and we look at what happened and we don't, we don't step back to realize and say what is clear, that God's most important passion is not our health or our comfort or our safety, but our intimacy. He presents himself to us like no other God. Every other religion has God presenting himself as uh, a judge purely. But this judge, this king, also says, I want to be your dad. This is not just a God of purity and morality and forgiveness. This is a God of adoption, of relationships. And that message is missing in a lot of our churches even. God truly is not mad at you. He is mad about you, so much so that he offers us redemption. So in the belly of a whale, Jonah does exactly what God wanted him to do, and he cries out to him. And God responds to this repentant prayer of this rebellious prophet in Jonah 2.10 when he says, Then the Lord ordered the fish to spit Jonah out on the beach, that pleasant first water slide. Disgusting. A big pile of a big fish vomit, and he's right in the middle. I remember the day Zach was born. That's a different discussion. Actually, it was quite epic because Zach was uh, very sick, uh, and Julie was very sick. She had preeclampsia, and so they decided to take Zach, uh, was it six weeks early? Zach, do you remember? Okay. Uh, they, uh, and and uh, Julie, it was... It, the doctor had to balance out when it was safer for the baby to be inside and when you take it out and deal with it. And he had no lung development according to their tests. And, and uh, so they were trying to keep him in as long as possible. And I remember the morning they said, okay, it's time. We, we got to get him out of there. And so they, they wheel us in and they try to make it as normal as possible. And they're about to do an emergency C-section. And I'm sitting there. And fortunately, they put a big thing between Julie's face and her belly and me. And, and they're like, uh, I remember this guy who looked like Keith Green. Remember the long curly hair? That was our anesthesiologist. And he's looking at me, and he's like, You're, this is going to be epic. It's going to blow your mind, man. I'm like, dude, don't smoke marijuana on the day my kid is born. <laughs> but we're uh, standing stand there, and he goes, you do, you do not want to miss this. And I remember sitting there going, I don't want to see it either. 
<laughs> and the doctor does the incision, and he's watching both sides. He's between the cloth is here, and we're over here, and then the, the belly, and Zach is over here, and the doctors, and they're doing their thing. Finally, he says, Mark, you got to see this. And he grabs me, and he pulls me up just in time to see the doctor reach into her belly and pull out this little thing covered in grape jelly. <laughs> and he's coming out, and he's going, that's what Jonah was doing. <laughs> I don't know why my mind does that. I am sorry. But to have a sane pastor, you have to pay more, apparently. <laughs> but he's just, this is just, this is just an unreal story. And I know that there are some in this room who find comfort in finding historical facts, that there are, sh there are fish that could probably carry life in them for a, for a while. I just want you to know that the God who can turn water to wine and raise the dead can do this without us explaining it. He's that good. If he wants to raise you to life, whether it's spiritual resurrection or physical resurrection, he can do it. We don't need proof. He can put a bunch of people in a boat, and he can make them survive when the flood. He can do all that, and I don't want you to forget that. This is a God of miracles. This is the God who takes doctors' diagnosis, and he turns them on their belly and proves life. Don't give up. And he doesn't always do that. So it's scary. We've got to be honest here. As C.S. Lewis always said, he is good, but he's not safe. And look at the stories of Scripture, that's proof. So God puts him in the belly of a whale so he'll cry out to him. He does. And in an act of mercy, he doesn't destroy Jonah. He doesn't leave him in the belly of the whale. He doesn't let him drown like he deserves. He actually vomits him on the sea shore and sends him back a second time. Go tell these people about redemption. Mercy. Getting what we don't deserve. We talked about this last week. This book, this book is full of stories of mercy. Like in, in Luke chapter 23, where it records that a mighty roar rose from the crowd, and with one voice they shouted, kill him, kill him, but release Barabbas to us. Barabbas was in prison for taking part in an insurrection in Jerusalem against the government and for murder, as if Luke needed to add that. Pilate argued with them because he wanted to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, crucify him. Kill that one. For a third time, he demanded, why? What crime has he committed? I found no reason to sentence him to death, so I will have him flogged and I will release him. But the mob shouted louder and louder, demanding that Jesus be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate sentenced Jesus to die as they demanded. As they had requested, he released Barabbas, the man in prison for insurrection and murder, and he turned Jesus over to them as they wished. That's mercy. God, in his infinite wisdom, knew that day that he would be exchanged for a criminal. And God showed that man mercy. So Barabbas, who is worthy of crucifixion and deserve for murder, was released. And Jesus, who was innocent, was not. That's mercy. And the story continues in verse 32. Two others, both criminals, were led out to be executed with him. When they came to a place called the skull, they nailed him to the cross. And the criminals were also crucified, one on his right and one on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And the soldiers gambled for his clothes by throwing dice. The crowd watched, and the leader scoffed. He, he saved others, they said. Let him save himself if he is really God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers mocked him, too, by offering him a drink uh, of sour wine. 
They called out to him, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. A sign was even fastened above him with the words, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals hanging beside him scoffed. Can you imagine this? You're dying. You are facing your death. What kind of scarred soul and heart must you have to scoff another person dying? So you're the Messiah, are you? Prove it by saving yourself and us too while you're at it. He's mocking him. They're both hanging there. And he, and he has the effort and the energy and the rage and the bitterness to look over and mock the one in the middle. But the other criminal protested, don't you fear God? Think about this. He leans forward with his head and looks across the crucified Christ. And he says to him, don't you even, are you even afraid? Don't you fear God even when you have been sentenced to die? We deserve to die for our crimes, but this man hasn't done anything wrong. Then he said, Jesus, Yeshua, salvation. That's what that name means. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, oh, I assure you, today you will be with me in paradise. That's grace. Mercy is letting Barabbas go free. And no matter what the robe says, no matter what all those movies say, we don't know what happens to that guy. That's mercy. Grace. Grace is saying, you deserve what you're getting, and I'm not going to save you from it today, but at the end of the day, you're going to be with me. I won't just remember you. I'm going to be hanging out with you. That's grace. It's amazing grace. Giving this man what he didn't deserve. Mercy and grace from God to those in the video. Mercy and grace for the sailors on the ship with Jonah. Mercy for the Assyrians in Nineveh. Mercy for Jonah who deserved to be eaten by a fish. Mercy for Barabbas. Mercy and grace for the thief on the cross. And mercy and grace for us. Mercy and grace for us. Do you remember Ephesians chapter 2? This is your story. Ephesians chapter, the book of Ephesians, or letter to the Ephesians, is written to a church that's being beat up by the Jerusalem church. The Christian Jews, they're wondering if they're even saved, and they feel like second-class Christians, and they're freaking out, and they're writing letters to Timothy, the pastor, and, and John's the pastor of this church. They're wondering how they fit into God's plan. Are we just, just kind of second-class Christian citizens? And so Paul writes a letter to the Ephesians church, and he basically says, you are chosen by God. But all of a sudden, election comes into value. You're not an accident. You didn't just outsmart sin. God drew you to himself. And why? Because according to his unchanging plan, Ephesians 1.5, you've been called to be adopted. He wants to make you his children. That's how much he loves you. And then he goes on, but in chapter 2, you get this sense that after telling them that they're chosen and special and precious, he doesn't want them getting cocky. So he wants to remind them who they are without Jesus. So he writes in Ephesians 2.1, once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins, you used to live just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. But God, the two best words in the scriptures, 
But God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, uh, Zach, when he's traveling, uses a picture that he puts on a screen. I shared this Wednesday night, and it's beautiful. We are familiar in the evangelical church with pictures, various pictures of people in the ocean drowning in a sea. And you see Jesus reaching down like he does with Peter and kind of picking us up by the scruff of our neck and pulling us into the boat. The problem with that is theologically that's inaccurate. If you want a real picture of the person who's not saved, you have to dive way down in the middle of the ocean to the bottom of the seashore, and he's laying there unconscious. An incredible God swims down to that person, raises the dead body off the bottom of the ocean floor, brings them up, brings life into them, and they come to life. You see, people can't tread water when they're dead. They can't tread spiritual water. And that's who we are without Christ. We're dead, but God is rich in his mercy. And he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace you have been saved. You weren't just given mercy. You were given grace more. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him um, uh, in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness towards us as he has shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for good things we've done so none of us can boast about it. We are God's masterpiece. We are God's masterpiece. We're not our own masterpiece. We're not the masterpiece of the Southern Baptist Convention or the Assemblies of God or some religious huckster. We're not the masterpiece of the church or the morality of our parents. We are God's masterpiece as a result of his mercy allowing us to live and the grace allowing us to be changed. We are God's masterpiece. And do you remember how he did this? 2 Corinthians 5.21 For God made Christ who never sinned to me, the offering for our sins. Some of the scriptures actually say, some of the translations, and it's accurate, made Christ sin for us. Jesus Christ, who is perfection, became imperfection so that we could be made right with God through Christ. In other words, he exchanged our sinfulness with Christ's holiness. His perfection, his purity, he exchanged it. It's called the exchange life. And the fact is that because of that, I am as righteous as Christ and he was as sinful as Mark. That's what that verse is saying. The fact is that Jesus Christ didn't just show me mercy, he showed me grace, having our sin paid for so we don't have to pay for it for ourselves, which is mercy, not getting what we deserve, being made right with God or adopted into his family, being given an opportunity to serve him, being able to enjoy eternity with him, now that's grace, getting what we do not deserve. Grace. The fact is that we have a broken relationship with the creator of the universe. Romans 3.23. Why don't you look at that? Who is he talking about? Jews? Gentiles? Everyone. Everyone has sinned and we fall short of God's standard. God has a standard. He expects from people that are in his family. It's perfection. And we have all fallen short of that. The word sin simply means that we have missed the mark. It's actually not a religious word. It's an archery word. 
Some of you guys love to hunt with arrows and bows or crossbows, which is just a gun by a different bullet. It's still cheating. (laughs) But the fact is that some of you can hit that red dot more than not. But the fact is, if everybody could hit the red dot every time, it wouldn't be that impressive now, would it? The truth is you don't hit it every time. That's sin. That's what that word is. Oh, you sinned. (laughs) What do you mean I sinned? You missed the red dot. That's what it means. And we've all missed the red dot of righteousness, of purity. The truth is, it's worse than just missing the mark, though, a few times with God. Look at what David wrote in Psalm 51.5. For I was born a sinner. Yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. It's actually worse than me messing up at two, throwing a tantrum in my terrible twos and sinning. Well, you're not a sinner. You're just a child. Still accountable. Still wrong. Well, what if you don't know you're sinning? The problem with sin, my friends, is it's not a willful thing. It's a thing. That's like saying if I run somebody over, it's just manslaughter. They're still dead. I'm still going to jail. You're responsible for what you do, whether you intend to do it or not. And we, we don't like to talk about that, but David actually says that I was born a sinner, yes, from the moment I, my mother conceived me, reaffirming this fact and even explaining why we are sinners at our birth. In Ephesians 2, 3, Paul wrote that all of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful, what's that word? Nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. In other words, by my nature, I'm already under God's wrath before I even do anything. The reason we are under God's wrath or His anger, now pay attention, is not simply because we have sinned or missed the mark too many times. We don't become a sinner when we miss the mark. We are already sinner. We are already sinners. Our nature is fallen. Our nature is a mess. We just read that. Therefore, we miss the mark because of who we are. We have a tendency to think we become something because of what we do. I'm here to tell you, you do what you do because of who you are. And it's not any different for the believer. For the believer, you know who's in control by how you live. The fruit of your life, what you do, determines whether or not God's in control. It's not complicated. We try to make it complicated by, I didn't mean that sin. Unfortunately, you don't have to mean it. It is a reflection of who you are. That's what's so amazing about this. We're not just wrong with God because we sin. We sin because we're a sinner. We were born under the wrath of God by our very nature. And the reason we're under God's wrath Or his anger is not simply because we have messed up too many times, but because Romans 5.12 explains how we got into this natural position we're in. When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death. So death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. This answers the question of why babies die and why 900-year-old people die. Because death is the result of sin in our flesh. Not, not just there, but also in 1 Corinthians 15, 21. Paul writes that death came into the world through this one man. It says this, just as death came into the world through a man, Adam, now the resurrection from the dead has begun through another man, Jesus. Want to see more graphically or clearly? Look at Romans 6, 23. You're familiar with this one. For the wages of sin is, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord grace and mercy. You don't get what you deserve. There's not a person in this room that was with any kind of integrity that is going to say they've never sinned. 
There's not anybody in this room with any integrity who, who would say that their baby isn't rebellious. Oh, they're just being a baby. That's cultural, okay? We live in a time where we want to explain away everybody's sin. If I can give you a psychological reason for your anger, it's okay in this culture. I got news for you. Burning down a building, even if you have good reason to, is still illegal, and it should be. Being angry and hurting other people for whatever reason is not acceptable. You're still hurting other people. But if you just understand why I'm so mad, that's why our country is a mess right now. We're trying to understand why people who have a religious bent to kill us, why they do that. Because if we, the arrogance, if we could just figure out why they want to kill us, then maybe they won't want to kill us anymore. That is how secular our culture has become. You see, our culture believes that nobody is that religiously serious. I want you to take a deep breath for a second, and I'm going to take a rabbit trail. I know I do it rarely. But I want you to think about what, what it means for a culture to look at a group of people. That, and it's not new. During World War II, the Japanese Zeros had a kamikaze set of pilots who believed that the emperor was God, and if they sacrificed themselves for him, they would meet a higher plane. The jihadist believes that if, in fact, he dies as a martyr, he will receive certain rewards from his God. And I'm here to tell you that they actually believe that. No, they're just mad because they're poor. Some of them are doctors. They're not poorly educated. They have a great future if they want it. They just believe that. And if you want to know how secular Christianity has become in our culture, just look at how they look at religious zealousness. They don't believe it's real. They can't fathom somebody giving their life for something like that. It's just religion. I know you're going, are you saying that Islam is true? I'm not. I'm saying that believers are real. And we have to understand that we are at war with believers, not American-style believers, but really, really, really committed believers. I just can't imagine doing that. That's because you're not that committed. There's a backhanded slap. You see, we can't even imagine dying for God. That's unreasonable. Our God wouldn't ask that of us. Aren't you relieved he wouldn't? Unless you're Stephen or John the Baptist or Peter or Jesus. You see, the truth is that we can't fathom sincerity and commitment because we're sort of half in, like James, you know? So we look at people that are, and we kind of go, wow, they're crazy. Are they? What does that say about what we believe about obedience and commitment? Back on task, the wages of sin is death, intentional or not. But the free gift of God is life, whether you understand it or not. Life, mercy of God. God keeping us from what we deserve, spiritual death, condemnation, by the judge of the universe. We deserve to be condemned. We deserve by our nature to be separated from God from eternity in that place that was created for the devil and his angels. But through Jesus Christ our Lord, he offers us mercy from that judgment. As he did the sailors from a watery tomb, as he did the people of Nineveh from their city being destroyed in 40 days, as he did Jonah from the fish's belly, as he did Barabbas from the cross that he deserved. The grace of God is offering us what we do not deserve, that is eternal life, a relationship with him, and peace in this weird life we're living. Peace in the storm. 
a corrected, declared, sinless, perfect relationship where he has chosen to put our punishment on Jesus and declare our sins gone through Jesus. Uh, there's, there's not a person here who hasn't at one time gone, if I, just, I just wish, God, if I could have anything from you, it would just be you saying, you're forgiven, let's go on with life. That's what he did. It's pastors that keep reminding you how screwed up you are. I'm here to tell you that you are as screwed up as they say. They just forget to tell you that you've been declared as Jesus perfect. Yeah, but last night I looked at, uh, I looked at uh, something I shouldn't look at, and I had thoughts I shouldn't have, therefore I'm no longer sinless. You're sinless because 1 John 1.9 says, if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You're cleansed because of the work of Jesus. He declared you cleansed. When he died 2,000 years ago, he took your addiction to pornography on his cross. He took that. On the cross, Jesus was addicted to porn. He was an alcoholic. He was a murderer. He was a thief. He was a homosexual. All of those things he took on the cross because you became free and pure and clean as a result of his cross. He took the sinfulness of Mark. Who, he who knew no sin took Mark's sin so that I could become the righteousness of God. I'm not here to tell you that I don't struggle with sin. My goodness, I struggle with trust every day. I'm here to tell you that that's not being counted against me. That's what's amazing about this. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For God made Christ who had never sinned to be the offering for our sins so that we could be made right. That's where the workmanship comes in. I'm made right. I'm the workmanship of God, not the workmanship of Mark. The church has forgotten this. It isn't you, it's him. God made Christ who had never sinned to be the offering for our sins so that we could be made right with God through Christ. Romans 3, 23 through 25. For everyone has sinned, for we all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God freely and graciously, what's that word? Declares. Does anybody not know what declares means? It's a, it's a statement. It's a, it's a, it's a, declar <laughs> it's a declaration. I know all the English teachers in here. You know, I have a couple words I struggle with, and I know that English teachers never notice it. One is, I used to always correct people when they said irregardless. I am fully aware that's not a word. You don't have to email me anymore. Declare means declare. I know you can't define a word with a word. I remember fourth grade English. But, but it's, it is. It's, it's declared. You are righteous. Well, yeah, but I, I still struggle. Yeah, but I'm God. Yeah, but I don't know. I'm pretty messed up. Quit feeling sorry for yourself. I declared you righteous. Walk with me. I think sometimes in the Protestant church, we're worse than Catholics are. We keep going to confession. How about knocking it off? Thanking God for grace and getting on with your life. In a few minutes, we're going to have communion together. And I grew up in a church that was always, the pastor would always read 1 Corinthians 11, and it would talk about taking communion in remembrance of him, and then, and then there would be a warning. But if you're not in fellowship with the brethren, make sure you don't take, because some even sleep. Remember all that? For those who grew up in the church, that was like communion poisoning, I called it. And I knew people in my church that were having an affair, and I would watch them take communion, and nobody dropped dead. They should have, by the pastor's proclamation. I'm here to tell you, you have been cleansed. Quit feeling sorry for yourself. Knock off your sin and walk with God. Take communion and celebrate mercy and grace that you don't deserve. That's the point. The point is you don't deserve it. The point is you deserve to be in the belly of a whale. The point is that Jonah should have died at the bottom of the sea, and God, when he died, should have said, you are a big loser. And Jonah would have said, I know I am. But he didn't do that. He spit him up and said, I'm going to give you a second chance to do the right thing. That's our God. 
Our God doesn't look at you and say, you've, you've crossed the line this time. He says, when are you going to get sick of crossing the line? I made it so you're not, you're not going to in eternity be held accountable for crossing the line. I'm simply telling you today, it's time to walk with me. Yeah, but before I do, I've got to fix all this stuff. I'll fix it. Walk with me. Yeah, but I don't deserve it. Knock it off. Of course you don't deserve it. That's why it's called mercy. That's why it's called grace. To us, it's a song. It's, it's not deep. It's not reality. For God presented Jesus as a sacrifice for our sins. People are made right with God. It's verse 25 of Romans 3. People are made right with God when they believe. That Jesus sacrifices life, shedding his blood. Are you kidding? That's all? What about baptism? What about walking an aisle? That's not what it says. Something happens in here. It gets better than this, though. Child of God, look at First Corinthians or Colossians 1, 15 to 22. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in heavenly realms and on the earth. He made things that we can see and the things we can't see. You know how they keep finding new things way, way out there with the Hubble telescope? They keep improving its power. They keep figuring out. They, we got these rogue satellites that are so far out now that they can see way out there. And they keep going, oh, we just discovered. There's a library in there where if you hit through a wormhole, you'll end up in that library one day. Inception is the worst movie ever in the history of humanity. This is an ongoing fight that Zach and I have. If you haven't seen the movie, I ruined the ending. I'm telling you, it's worth ruining. Don't waste two and a half hours of your life. But the truth is, but the farther we look, the more it's like God is saying, just a little bit farther. Figure the atom out. Get to the middle of the atom and split it in half. And when you do, you'll find a positive and a negative, And you'll figure out how the atom works. Except for how did we get the positive in the first place? Look at the tissue of a human skin and figure it out. Look and, uh, doctor, please, research. And you'll get to the core of it and you'll wonder how it works because there's no answer for that. Except that somewhere along the line, a big bang took place and it all just turned into a Cadillac. Here's the good news. Whether God said blow up or not, he makes it work. Scripture tells us that he holds all things together. And that's our dad. That's the one who said, I declare you clean. Verse 16, you're in 17 now, but it says, For through him God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made things that we see and the things we can't see, such as thrones and kingdoms and rulers and authorities in the un un unknown world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. Christ is also the head of the church, which is the body. He is the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead. So he is first in everything. For God in all fullness was pleased to live in Christ, and through him God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in, in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. Pay attention here. This includes you who were once far away from God, his children. You were once his enemies, separated by him from your evil thoughts and actions. Yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. And here's the implication for you. As a result, he has brought you into his very presence, and you are, present tense, holy and blameless. The Greek word in are there tells you it started at one point in history past, and it is never, ever going to stop again. Greek is awesome. 
but no more clear than in this word. It says at one point in history past, at one point it started, because before that you were separated. But when you cease to be separated, you will never, ever again, ever be separated from God. Next time somebody tells you that you can lose your salvation, take them to the Greek. They won't understand it, but they'll be impressed. The fact is that we keep threatening the dirty out of you, and I'm here to tell you that there's not enough fear, there's not enough self-will to do it. You have to understand the grace and mercy of God, which will cause you to fall in love with Him, which will cause you to want to walk with Him. And I'm here to tell you today that when we talk about our sinfulness, the only reaction should be, thank you for your mercy. Can I still walk with you? And you'll hear from heaven, absolutely, that's my intention. Come on, let's go. Let me show you things. But i got to know what i got to fix first. You must fix nothing. I have fixed everything. Because that is grace and mercy. That's what Jesus did when Peter, a week after denying him three times, is on the seashore and he's feeding him breakfast. And Jesus doesn't say, Huh, yo, Pete. He says, Peter, do you love me? You're just like Peter. Didn't, can you imagine Jesus Showing up, remember our parents used to tell us that Jesus is watching. Jesus is watching. And he is. But there was that fear that he would show up in the room like this. Your mother was bright. I am watching. But imagine for a second that he shows up and we kind of expect him to go, oh boy, 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 boy. If I would have known this. Instead, he's going, it's okay, come on. Let's walk. He vomits up Jonah. And it says for a second time, he repeated himself, I want you to go to Nineveh and tell him. Doesn't whip him. Doesn't tell him off. Just tells him to get back in the game. Communion to me as a child was a process that started a week before. I would go through all the sins in my life so I wouldn't be the one person that dropped dead in the history of the church when I drank the old grape juice. I really lived in fear of it. And I'm here to tell you that His grace is sufficient for even your willful, continual sin. Now knock it off. Knock it off. Walk worthy of your calling, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4. Oh, I think I'm addicted. Then get help. But walk with Him. He's given you more than mercy. When you get to heaven, you won't be going, Oh, I'm such a loser. He's going to go, You're my kid. Do you remember when your daughter turned 12? or 13, and she got depressed. I like Mark, but he doesn't think I'm pretty. (gasps) And so you started being a parent. You're beautiful, despite the gap in your teeth and your bad hair. (laughs) Someday, some man will come along that loves you as you are. That's what we do to God all the time. He can't tell us anymore how much he loves us. He can't tell us anymore how forgiven we are. He can't tell us anymore how beautiful we are to Him. He can't tell us anymore that His grace is sufficient. At some point, by faith, we have to believe it. We have to stop feeling sorry for ourselves, for the nature that we were born with, thank Him for His mercy, tell Him how grateful we are for His grace, and follow Him. And stop living so safe. I grew up in a church that told me not to play cards. Because if I played with cards, I might end up playing poker. And we all know that poker is the scourge of the earth. I remember specifically going on a, and I've told you about this before, on a backpack retreat with a bunch of guys and being told why I shouldn't hold hands. 
because holding hands leads to, well, it is touching, but it leads to hugging. And hugging is touching. And touching leads to more touching. And then on a whiteboard in the middle of the Laguna Mountains in Southern California, my youth pastor wrote a capital P and a small p. The small p was petting. That was outside the clothing. The, heavy, the large p was heavy petting. That's inside the clothing. And for the next 30 minutes, I listened to him explain what happens if you hold hands. What are we doing? Do you know what he did? He turned me on and broke my heart in the same two minutes. Sometimes I don't think about what I say before it comes out. I mean, the, the fact is we keep getting <laughs> this too in remembrance of me. You, you know what I'm talking about. We sit around and we talk about us and how we're not good enough. Well, that's the story core. But he is good enough. I actually remember, the truth is that I remember having a broken heart, and this is the part I've told you before. I remember weeping for the next 24 hours. I couldn't sleep. Because at home I was looking at porn, and he's telling me not to hold hands with a girl. I mean, I was way beyond that in my heart. We love to remind you how sinful you are when in reality we should be pointing at how merciful he is. And is that not the story of Jonah? You see, the, the story of Jonah is just named Jonah, but he's not the key character of Jonah. It's God. It's God redeeming a bunch of sailors. It's God redeeming a, a rebellious Jonah. Boy, the end is awesome. It's hilarious. We're going to have so much fun next week. It's, it's God redeeming a nation for a short period of time. This whole book is about that. It's God using a, a man that we put in stained glass named Abraham who actually tried to pimp his wife off twice and his boy Isaac who did the same thing. It's God using Sarah to be the mother of this great nation that would bring our Messiah. But when the Lord goes and tells him, her husband, when she's inside the tent, you're going to have this baby? She laughs at God. There ain't no way you can make this baby happen. So, before we go into Thessalonians, because I don't believe we realize just how deeply emotionally flawed our patriarchs were, we're going to take a few weeks and do a short series in the middle. I haven't figured out the title, but it's something like The Men and Women of God in the History and How They Felt About God. <laughs> I can't title that and put it on a church sign. Aren't you glad we don't have one? But I... I do think that we need to go back and realize what they felt because I got news for you. You and I feel exactly like they did. Abandonment, depression, sadness, fear, joy, mountaintop experiences, all those things. And we don't talk about it enough, so we're going to. And then we'll go into Thessalonians. But we're going to take some time and start with Psalms and we're going to look at the characters of Scripture and we're going to see what they felt because I've got news for you. Jesus died not just for your porn addiction or your gossip. He died for your feelings as well for your doubt and your fear and your questions. He died for your rebellious nature as his child. He even died for that. He died so that Jonah could go the wrong way. He died so that Peter could deny him. He died so that you could still be his child and hate your wife. Now, he doesn't want to leave you there. That's mercy. He wants to heal you and show you grace so that you can tell others. 
that the God who created you that you've sinned against has not given up on you. And he can transform you through the power of the Holy Spirit into his image. If you'll just give up. So what do I do, Pastor? Give up. What do I do? Give up. Be still and know that I'm God. But I'm scared. So am I. Give up. What do I do? Start by giving up and do the best you can. The story of this book is not how we made a country, how we make a country great or how we become moral or how we become good parents or good bosses. From the front to the back, it's about a God who continually shows us mercy and offers us grace to people who continually rebel and push back against it. The gospel is our story after story of Jesus trying to explain why he came to us, wondering if we'll ever get it. Look at John 3.16. For my father so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, me, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. In this next verse, God sent me into the world not to judge the world. Boy, you can start breathing again. He did not send Jesus to judge the world, but to save the world through him. And it's Jesus humbling himself, even humiliating himself, by begging his sinful creation to trust him. How about Matthew eleven twenty eight and 29? Come to me. Come on. All of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I'll give you rest. I, I know that you've read this a million times and heard it, and it's, Come unto me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. We've heard that. But it's not that. When Jesus said it, he goes, come on. Come to me, please. That's why my dad sent me. My dad sent me to seek you. And I'm here. Please come to me, and you'll get rest. Come with me, your burdens to me. Come on. Think about how humiliating it is for the creator of the universe to beg you. Most of us won't beg our kids when they're rebelling. God, the creator of you, who you have turned your back on, begs you to trust him, to give you rest. Who is this God that we pray to? Who is this God that we sing about and read and talk of that begs us to let, us say, let him save us? How insane is this? Who is this one that after begging us to let him forgive our sin and heal us, spiritually offering us more, 1 Corinthians 2.9, after forgiving us, showing us mercy, after begging us to trust him with our lives, this is what it says about him. No eye has seen and no ear has heard and no mind can imagine what God has prepared for those who love him. He is sitting on his throne today going, just, just let me give you more. I want to give you more. Well, I, I got this, Jesus. No, you don't. You just think you do. The story of the Bible is not about people, though there's lots of stories of people. The Bible isn't about sinners or morality or man's inhumanity of man or wars of nations. It's about a God who is willing to show mercy and grace to anyone and everyone who will call on his name, no matter what their genetics, socioeconomic status, or sin history. People like us. And John 1, 12 and 13 says this, To all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become the children of God. They are reborn not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or pain or plan, 
but a birth that comes, what's this? From God. From God. From God. When I die, please do not talk about the fact that I am a Southern Baptist faster. Please. When I die, my obituary will talk about all the years that I preached. But that is not my story. I want the shortest funeral in the history of man. God's kid. Because that's all that matters. Mercy and grace summed up in one statement. Child of God. It's not about sin. It's about adoption. And God knew that it wouldn't take us long as we walked around life and wars and governments and raising kids and getting old and sick. God knew that we would forget. So he gave us this. Remember that line, this do in remembrance of me? Do you know why we have to do this in remembrance of him? Because we're inclined to forget him. We're inclined to make it about our goodness or our religious affiliation or our morality. When that verse says that this birth comes from God. And if you're here this morning because you grew up Southern Baptist or Evangelical or Assemblies of God or a churchgoer or a Southerner, then your rebirth is born of something that will not last forever. Because only God giving life lasts forever. I'm going to ask our elders to come forward as we prepare for communion this morning. Oh, family, celebrate grace and mercy. Enjoy it. Football season's up. And you are going to be disappointed by both the Dallas Cowboys and the Houston Texans. But God doesn't disappoint. Even if you think he's disappointing, he doesn't disappoint. Even if you're convinced he's forgotten you, he hasn't forgotten. Because even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We didn't even know we were in trouble. And he took care of it. That's not just mercy. That, my friends, is grace. And this morning we're going to take communion thinking about His grace. Lord Jesus, we thank You for Your Word that reminds us of You. We often forget You. You become a part of the story when You are the whole story. And so this morning as we take communion, we thank you for this gift of the communion table that we do in, to remember you. And I pray that you would help us in these few quiet moments to put you back at the central point of the story where you belong. We love you. But at the end of the day, it isn't our love for you that will save us or change us. It's your love for us. So dad, I just want to thank, say thanks. I know I'm not worthy of it. I know I don't deserve it. But man, am I glad those are not conditions. In Jesus' name, amen.
as they pass out the bread. I want to talk to those of you who don't know Jesus or watching on the internet or in this room or confused about communion. The scripture says that one of the things that we do is remember him, but the other thing is as often as we do this, we proclaim his death, burial, and resurrection until his return. So if you're here this morning and, and you're not a child of God, and this morning maybe you found out for the first time that it's not the bad things that do that make you a sinner. You were born a sinner. The bad things you do just confirm that. And God sent Jesus to redeem you from that which you've confirmed. I'm here to tell you that communion won't save you. It's just matzo that we order on the internet because you can't get it in East Texas. And this is Welch's grape juice unless we could find a, a cheaper brand. It's not the blood and body of Christ. It's just stale Jewish bread and grape juice. We do it because it reminds us of how we got to where we are, saved, forgiven, right with God. And we invite you to join us. No, we plead you to join us. Right now, where you're at, you can just say, God, I know that I am a sinful person and I am deserving of judgment. And I know that you sent Jesus, just like that verse said, to save me from that. And I want that birth that comes from God. I don't understand it, but I want that. And where you're at in your living room or in this room, you can just tell him. It's not complicated. Tell him. All who call upon the name of the Lord, according to Romans 10, 13, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Will be saved. Forgiven. Made right with God. Adopted. Cry out to him. For the rest of y'all, Take a few moments and thank him for his mercy. And when Satan reminds you of why you're not worthy of it, instead of fighting Satan, just say, yeah, you're right. Thank God for mercy. Just admit it. Make him pay for whispering in your ear. Make him never want to do it again because it draws you to Jesus. bread symbolizes the body of Christ. It basically says, I was willing to die for you. I was willing to be born and live 33 years. And then I was willing to be broken for you. A million different ways he could have shed his blood, but he did it the complete way. So we could never doubt his understanding, his sincerity, and his commitment to redeeming us. The bread, the body of Christ doesn't save you. It's the blood. But he wanted us to remember 
that there's not a problem, fear, difficulty you face, struggle even, he was tempted, that he hasn't experienced that same thing. The only difference between you and Jesus Christ is he never sinned. It's the only difference. So in that, with that knowledge, we remember Christ together. Father, we thank you for not just floating out of heaven for a few hours, dying on the cross and going back up, but giving your body for us so that there isn't a fear or temptation that comes our way that you don't say, I get it. Boy, that's hard to resist, isn't it? Thank you for understanding. Thank you for being compassionate. Thank you for being less judgmental than most of our pastors. We are appreciative. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. So the grape juice kind of looks like blood. It's the color of blood. That's why we use it. Uh, in biblical times at the Seder service or in the New Testament church, they'd use wine. Um, we don't use it because people struggle with alcoholism. And frankly, it doesn't matter what the liquid is. It matters what's in our heart and what we remember, right? Scripture tells us that it was through the shedding of Christ's blood that there is forgiveness or remission of sin. Through the shedding of his blood. It wasn't his zeal or his passion or his commitment or his obedience to his Father. It was his blood that cleanses us from all unrighteousness, past, present, and future. So my brother and sister, I want to remind you this morning that you stand before him pure and holy. And I want to challenge you right now to take a few moments as these elements are being passed and cast your fears and your burdens and your sins on him. Thank him for the mercy he's already shown you and the grace he's already shown you. If you got stuff going on that you're choosing, you can say, I'm sorry, but he's going to say, I've already forgiven you. You might try thank you this time. Say thank you. For you who do not know Jesus Christ, I plead with you again that salvation is not found through the church or through baptism. It's found through Jesus. And if you will just tell him you want to be saved and need to be saved, and you surrender your life to him, you'll be saved. It's too easy. That's why it's called faith. It's unbelievable. That's why it's called faith.
birth that we remember today is not the result of human passion or plan, but it's a birth that comes from God, the judge himself who sent his son to chase you. There is no religion in the world that tells a story like that. It's almost too much to believe. It takes faith. Just do in remembrance of that. Father, thank you for mercy that opened the door for grace. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So that wraps up our service today, but it's the beginning of something new. Um, Bible study is going to start in 10 minutes. If I can get some folks to help us stack these chairs, we want them eight high, and then we'll get some carts and we'll put them in the hallway. You'll notice that the elders are making their way to the door. Uh, if you, uh, at the end of communion services, we have uh, a, a benevolence offering that helps members of our congregation that are going through difficult financial times. If you're able to help us with that, great. If not, that's okay too. Thank you for being here this morning. God bless you, and have a wonderful Sunday.